Welcome to Madden Japan Podcast. Apologize for being away for a while. Um, been super busy. We had some uh, holidays over here, and I had a, one of the busiest uh, wedding months that I've had in years. Uh, I, I officiate weddings on the weekends here in Japan. Uh, this is uh, the next part of my early years in Japan. I'm going to keep adding to on a regular basis. The first part talked a little bit about why I came to Japan and how the first year went and how I kind of got stuck over here in Japan. Um, uh, my six month stay ended up being, well, now permanently, but it's been over, tw it's been 21 years. Actually, I just celebrated my 21st anniversary in Japan. Um, I came over here, a uh, quick recap. I came over here for a six-month plan and to experience Japan to live with my uh, then wife family uh, they had a business that was busy during the spring and summer and not so busy in the fall and I I had a martial art class back in America kind of mirrored that uh, not so busy in the summer because people had all kinds of activities going on in the summer and busier when the school year started in the fall. So it was a kind of a perfect design. I actually spent nearly two years preparing for this adventure. I built a guest house in my mother's backyard, paid off bills, had my life all set up. So six months Japan, back to America, and things worked out well. Maybe another six-month tour of Japan or experience of Japan. Well, when I got to Japan, my wife then had other plans, and 9-11 had a lot to do with it as well. And uh, the passport was hidden from me. My daughter's passport was hidden from me. The uh, Japan was not a member of the Hague Convention that dealt with international uh, abductions, so I had no recourse to legally to do anything about it. Uh, they, could, they were worried that I was actually grab her and escape the country and uh crossed my mind but without a passport you couldn't uh the way it works if the child is under 16 i do believe both parents have to be present at the embassy they don't have two parents they have to go through get an affidavit and go through a lot of a lot of legal pr uh, processes to to even do that so it's was nearly impossible, if not impossible. Anyway, I, I, the first year, this happened the first year, so the, this is where I'm picking up now, the, the next few years in Japan. Well, this is when things get a little bit dark. I call these the dark years because all my plans, uh, my two-year preparation, spending all my money, paying my bills, and building a house in my mother's uh, property, and and having everything set up, and then all of a sudden everything goes out the window. I mean, a monkey wrench in the gears, big time. And uh, I, I didn't really have a backup plan. I mean, I realized I could have gone to America on my own. But I didn't want to. Uh, already had a. I didn't want to leave another child. You know, I had my my first daughter, was left in America, and I felt ex and she was you know, growing up, and I was, 
not there like I should have been as a parent. I re that's my biggest regrets in in my life actually, and and uh, I didn't want to do that again. You know, I, could I go back and and do that? And then I, you know, I I didn't choose which one like that. I just didn't want to do it again, and. Uh, it was just a troubling time, and I didn't know what to do. And then, by being not having being indecisive, I kind of like was stuck in time, not being able to make a decision. Not for the you know probably the first time in my life, I just did not know what to do. And I started drinking, and I felt that I needed to have someone to talk to. There was there are no groups and like. Uh, support groups over here in Japan You're, and it's like you have to pick yourself up by your own bootstraps or just or just fail and end up homeless or dead or you had to do everything on your own I've never been so lonely in my life and I was by myself essentially the people that I was there and trusted it was with me turned against me uh, wouldn't me food would try to lock me out of the house everything went south so for my own survival I started looking for work I needed money I started not having money they cut my employment off uh, even though I had a few English students I didn't have enough money and I got behind in child support uh, in America I didn't even have money to feed myself and over here and uh, I went downtown drinking. How did I do that? No money. Well, I'll tell you. I had a good friend of mine who was an English teacher and uh, that made a lot of money. He had a, probably one of the best English jobs you can get. He worked for a uh, big company. He was the resident English teacher for this big company. And he had all kinds of money and he had his own apartment. So he knew I did martial arts and I was teaching him martial arts and in exchange you know, he would take me under his wing and buy me drinks and things to that nature. So basically, that's how I got my drinks. And then I developed a system, uh, kind of a scam, if you will, where I would go to these little neighborhood bars and uh, in lots of little neighborhood bars, like every hundred feet or so, all scattered through back streets and everywhere in Japan. And they're symbolized by these little red uh, lanterns. And what I would do, I see a red lantern. I was walking to this bar, and he say, "Oh, you're from where are you from?" You know, and I said, "I'm from America." And oh, okay. And they would like buy me a drink. Uh, and then I would like, "Oh, what is that right there?" Of course, I knew what it was. It was like chicken on a stick. Oh, it's uh, it's yakitori. So they would get me, oh, buy me some yakitori. And so by playing the role of the new foreigner in town, an American visiting, and like, oh, and trying to be friendly, make friends, I would, people would buy me drinks and buy me food. And then I would thank them and leave, and then I would go to another place I've never been to before and do the exact same process. I had a pretty good system down where I was getting free food and drinks by playing the role of like kind of a new, just arrived uh, American tourist experience in Japan for the first time, uh, even though I've been here for a couple years or more. So I had that scam going on. 
as well as uh, just, you know, bumming off friends. And so I started to get more and more work outside because uh, I wanted to be as independent as possible away from the, the family I was staying with. And, uh, and I did. In those days, it was quite easy to get money, uh, get jobs teaching English. It was a shortage of English teachers, and they had a lot of people wanting to learn English. The only requirement was just being a native speaker. Um, <clears throat> now you have to have a college degree, but preferably master's over here now. Uh, I have a college equivalent degrees. I have some uh, like associate degrees in industrial management and, and several certificate degrees and things like that, but I don't have a bachelor's degree. But I'm because I'm a school owner and was doing it before these rules came into place, I'm grandfathered. So that's why I can operate my own school and teach English legally. Well, anyway, I, um, I, this went on for a while. The the cycle of drinking on the weekends and and then trying to sober up during the week and just starting to feel about halfway decent again and going back on a you know three day weekend bender. So that went on for a while, and uh, I was just disillusioned about you know where I was and I really didn't have any true friends, and then I met someone, a Canadian guy, that I could actually talk to for the first time. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, you know, it's a big, it's a, it's a drinking buddy, and a, somebody you can talk to, really, and get some feedback. I met a couple guys like this, a guy from Canada, and also another guy from um, England, uh, became really good friends of mine guy from Canada still in contact with and the guy from England unfortunately he uh, the guy from Canada did go back home to Canada but the guy in England I mean the guy in England he he remained in Japan and unfortunately he died a couple of years ago uh, that was probably the, the worst experience I've had in Japan losing my friend uh, like a brother anyway um, so I had a, I got a little bit of support and I was making a little bit of money so I realized I had to, you know, get my permanent residency if I wanted to stay in Japan. At the time, I had a spouse of a Japanese national visa, and that had to be renewed every couple of years. And so I went ahead and applied. At the five-year mark in Japan, I went ahead and applied for permanent residency, which is easier to get if that if you if you're married to a Japanese, it's not that difficult to get. As opposed, if I was just an English teacher over here, not married to a Japanese, it would take many years or something. Unless I worked for like a uh, had a contract with a business or a Japanese company or a university or something like that. But I didn't. I was kind of independent. So uh, I talked to my Japanese wife, and you know we. You know, get a permanent residency. We can have a, um, a divorce, a peaceful divorce, and uh, it would be work out for both of us. We'd both be free, and she could get some assistance as a single mother from the city, and uh, I can go on with my life and get out of this hell situation I was in. So. <clears throat> I applied for a permanent visa, and at this time I already met my current wife. Now we're seeing each other, and uh, she knew the situation. Uh, it was not 
when it was not an affair. Everybody was in on what was going on. It was this old red tape paper we had to deal with. Uh, there was no cheating, no nothing like that involved. It was all known. So as soon as we, uh, I got, well, anyway, I had to fill out a bunch of paperwork and I had to write uh, an essay of why I wanted to stay in Japan. And I made sure that was written beautifully, that I love Japan. I mentioned that my father lived in Japan and I grew up listening to his experiences and looking at pictures of Japan. And I mentioned that my first martial art teacher was uh, uh, Mr. Ogawa. He was from Japan and he taught me Japanese basics and, and karate for as uh, in elementary school, junior high and high school. I spent several years with Mr. Ogawa learning karate before I switched to Kung Fu. And, uh, or graduated to Kung Fu. Um, <clears throat> and then he, uh, when I, and, I, and I got it, I got my permanent residency. And then we had a very peaceful divorce and actually had lunch after the divorce with my first wife and everything's fine now, we're at peace. And uh, I stayed over here. Uh, my plan was to stay here to my, my second daughter, Japanese daughter, uh, graduated from high school. So, I meet, this opens us up to get married to my current wife. So, so me and my current wife get married. Uh, she's from Indonesia. She was over here studying Japanese language. She's very smart. She's very nice, very supportive. So she helped me get my shite together. Uh, I was in debt. I was way behind in child support because I financial issues. Uh, my jobs were not as good as they should have been or were and she helped me get sorted out and uh, You know she helped me get a life plan together and I eventually sobered up uh, It wasn't a it was not a cold turkey situation it wasn't on and off good times bad times, but eventually I uh, wised up and got my got my stuff together and we now have a a family and uh, I'm very happy we own a house and we uh, have live in a wonderful beautiful neighborhood with great neighbors and two wonderful children and life is good um, right now so let me go back so I'm at I guess the six or seven year mark in Japan now um, I made a decision to stay here so we got together and we upgraded our life you know a little bit and we we lived in an apartment so we paid off her she helped me pay off my my debts and then I my English school uh, was still in the Japanese house it was connected to it to that and then I had we had a big fire and it burnt down the English school the tofu shop Japanese everything was just destroyed and so I was without work again, and uh, I, we uh, said, okay, it was gonna be a big move. So we, we rented a house that was a big house. It had like five bedrooms, and uh, we made an English school out of that. We had a garage. We converted the garage into a tiki bar and would have English, it was a club, club status to keep it legal members only and you, you paid with points and not actual cash because we did have mixed drinks and things like that. So we had a tiki bar and it was kind of an English atmosphere, walk in, 
experience. It was a club, basically, and uh, it was an extension of the English school. We had that. That was fun and got us, you know, got a little experience working as a waiter and a bartender, and it was it was kind of fun. It was small and it was converted to the garage. But sometimes you're in the garage, you wouldn't realize you're in the garage. It was pretty. It was pretty cool. We had it fixed up pretty nice and. I served as the host, and my wife was was the cook, and, and uh, we would do it about once a month for a couple of years there, and I had English school, started doing well, and uh, life was good downtown, but we are still paying rent, and uh, then the 2000, around 2011, the Lehman Brothers, I'm sorry, 2008, hit Japan around 10 or so, 2010 or so, the Lehman Brothers crash worked its way over to Japan and um, salaries were cut, bonuses were cut, jobs were cut. So people had to sort of, you know, trimming fat out of their budget, their living expenses. And one of that was English classes or, you know, gym memberships, things like that were cut. So English schools took a big hit. And the biggest English school in Japan was essentially a pyramid scheme of expanding way too fast taking the money, uh, signing students up for a two-year prepayment program, and then taking that money, uh, the, the top management, blowing it in lavish lifestyles, and then the other part expanding it to the point that it all collapsed because they, didn't, they needed that constant flow of new students, and that collapsed. And the whole thing, that's when the pyramid scam, the Ponzi scheme was discovered. And uh, they put a bad taste in English. That didn't help things at all. And a lot of small neighborhood schools closed. A lot of schools closed. Many, I, I would say half of my acquaintances, uh, Western English-speaking acquaintances, more than half were gone because of they worked for this, these English schools that collapsed. And mine, I went to, I lost a significant amount of students myself, but my core students, supported me and the fact that my English school was in my house and I didn't have that extra I didn't have that house payment as well as an English school payment I survived there were some rough times uh, financially and that's when I started looking for other things and uh, fortunately kind of coincidentally the my kung fu class at a at a local like a community center like a community college associated with the local TV media and newspaper conglomerate had also had this like a community college kind of thing so I got a job there teaching Kung Fu and I went on for 12 years uh, until the pandemic shut it down well anyway um, that started so that started trickling in a little bit of extra income and then uh, my wife was holding down a couple part-time jobs as well and then I I had one ace in the hole that the first year in Japan I was approached to do weddings to officiate weddings and that was the last thing I wanted to do is anything related to public speaking such as officiating the weddings especially in a foreign language especially when it's so high profile and very important it's very uh, weddings over here are very professional and high class and a lot of money is involved uh, a lot of production is involved and, uh, and I'm thinking that was that was the only way I could I need to get it I need money I need it quick and the wedding industry was lucrative 
So I, it's the last thing I wanted to do, but I, just something that I knew was a possibility. So I made a website for myself, Shizuoka Wedding Pro, and uh, I started, you know, doing online classes, and then I went to, I got certified in Hawaii, actually, as a wedding officiant, and uh, and made a, hoping that somebody would see my website, and with, it was just a couple weeks, within a few weeks, I got a response saying, we came across your website, and we have a this new building downtown. It's going to be opening up soon, and we have a chapel, uh, two chapels, and we're looking for someone to officiate weddings. We'll provide the training. It's associated with the Evangelical Church. Uh, we are a wedding talent company associated with the church, and it's kind of a pre-evangelism uh, and slash business situation. And uh, I said, yeah, me, I'd be interested. So uh, they came down and they met me. And uh, then after they met me, they, I had to go to Tokyo and do training. And then it was a, a lot of training and a lot of I had a script I had to practice. And for like two or three months, that was practice, practice, practice. They would call me a few times a week and I'd actually have to read the script to them over the phone because they're located uh, a few hour drive away uh, in Tokyo. So we did it over the phone, and then I had my first weddings. And the first day, I had four weddings back-to-back. -back. That's not a recommended way to do it, but it went over. I was extremely nervous. Uh, I, I couldn't sleep up until the first wedding. I mean, up the whole week, I couldn't sleep. I was having nightmares. I'm going, I can't believe I've got myself into this situation. I can't believe i got to do this. i got to stand up and speak Japanese in front of all these people and with cameras and spotlights on me like a production thing what have I done and then uh, I was so nervous before the wedding I peed on my tie in the toilet taking a at the urinal <laughs> yes I, I share too much information but I peed on my tie like damn it so I had to go clean that off and and I was just nervous and and then the the president of the chapel and the, my boss is boss all these people there to watch me that didn't that didn't help things at all so I had this huge wedding and I have all these upper management people watching me and so I had to do it it's an outer body experience and I had this third voice talking to me the whole time I'm doing it and it was like oh god focus you know and just stay confident and I my kung fu training just you know keep on going you know it's not about you pushed me through and and it, it was successful the only thing uh my uh, my boss said is like you know you smile you, you look like you know essentially i look like a dead and hit um, a deer caught in headlights standing up there so smile and try to relax a little bit so it got a little bit better uh nearly 900 weddings and 11 years later now uh, I enjoy it. I sort of enjoyed it pretty much. Not just because it's a good money, but I enjoy being with people in the happiest day of their life. And I have got to the point I'm good at the script. I still get a little bit nervous, but people, they, it, it's not uh, physical. People can't see that I'm a little bit, my heart rate's up a little bit. Uh, and I'm a little, a little bit nervous, but... Uh, 
it, it's by the time I walk through the rehearsal and do it and get to the first couple of minutes of the way, I'm good to go. I actually enjoy it. And uh, so I'm still doing that to this day. And uh, I really, that was a good decision to me. And, and, and in the early days, it was extremely busy. So that money helped bail us out. That was the, the, the this, in a interesting way, it was my savior. Uh, get into the wedding business and, in, in an indirect way or more of a direct way, I don't know. Jesus helped me out. Uh, so, um, that was a, a good good thing for both of us. We got us, got us out of debt. And, and then eventually we started thinking, well, uh, my, my daughter, Japanese daughter, it came, the time came when she was graduating from high school. Now I saw this coming. Now this was about three or four years ago, so we're talking about 15 year mark now in Japan. Now the 15 year mark, I was, Sachi was approaching, my daughter was approaching graduation. So I said, okay, this was the deal. We stayed through graduation. So I was thinking perhaps we move back to America. Um, I love America, this, you know, but I don't like what's going on in America right now, but I, I'm American. I just, you know, have a lot of fond memories and I was raised American. And uh, so I thought about, let's, let's get something that's kind of a, a mixture of Japan and Indonesia and America. Let's put this, I was thinking Hawaii, Honolulu is perfect. It's, you know, kind of a halfway point. We're in one direction we're in America, another direction we're in Japan or Indonesia. So I thought Hawaii would be perfect. So I investigated Hawaii for a couple of years. I read the online, I read the newspaper, local newspaper, watched the YouTube, I watched the local news in Honolulu, trying to get the experience of the atmosphere of what was happening and what, uh, what was going on. And I made friends on Facebook and communicated with them. And then I actually went to Hawaii and uh, met with my friends and I interviewed. Hawaii, Honolulu especially, had a very high uh, homeless rate and there's a lot of petty crime going on. And I really, Japan's so safe and they don't have any of that. So that made me apprehensive. So I started investigating and I actually went around and interviewed these the homeless people and a lot of these homeless people are not like some old drunk men they're like these are you know some of the best looking homeless people you ever see this everyday people look like and they just don't have nowhere to go they don't have enough money can't afford it so i kind of got their backstory uh and found that the common the common thing wasn't necessarily drugs and things like that it was just the cost of living you can be paying $2,000 a month for a small apartment, and then the next year they'll jack it up to $2,000. They'll add $100 to it, and you just can't get a job. And you can't, you're just, you know, you're working two or three jobs and running around like with a chicken with a head cut off trying to work here and there with your part time jobs, and then you have to get roommates. And you're rarely home, you rarely have a day off, even though the beach is right over there. You can't get there. It's full of tourists anyway, and then you you know you're lucky to get to the beach once a you know once a month. So and then you're kind of stuck in a rut. You can't take a week off or two weeks off to go to 
Indonesia or visit America like I can now because you'd have to give up your jobs and you just you're kind of stuck in that rut and uh, it can get overwhelming and you can lose focus or get off track and then next thing you know you can't afford to pay rent and next thing you know you're homeless so uh, that and many other factors that pros and cons and the schools were not great in Hawaii and um, so I said okay what about moving back to my hometown Hampton Roads Suffolk Virginia Beach so I went back there and then uh, just talking to my friends and family I hear like still a lot of misery, misery going on with their jobs and their shift work I'm like I don't miss that Japan is kind of like it. it's kind of working 15 20 hours a week only and I can work my own schedule so I don't really want to get in that rat race again and the nail in the coffin for me Hampton Roads was just freaking pay tolls everywhere to go through the tunnel or take a bridge give me a break and this the, the driving and this the people tailgating you right on your bumper and, and like they're trying to push you for just the the unique driving situation in Hampton Roads was irritating me and then uh I said, uh, I kind of remember why I left this place, even though I kind of, you know, it's a love-hate. I love it. It's my, my history, but I don't want to deal with driving everywhere and getting on the interstates. And and uh, so I made a decision. Let's investigate Japan. How how could we, you know, live in Japan? Might be the, It's definitely safer. It has affordable health care is a big part of it, too. Japan has affordable health care. I go to the doctor every two months to get whatever kind of checkup I want and get my prescriptions renewed and pay 15 bucks. Uh, I can go anytime I want to any doctor I want. It's not like you know, some like Canada and England might have to long, you have to, you have to wait for weeks before you can go see the doctor. No, I can just walk in right now. I might have to wait an extra 30 minutes or an hour, but I can just walk in. So, medical care. And then we found the fact that we could buy a house. So we bought a house. We bought a house. We own a house. We're property owners. I didn't realize as foreigners we can own property. You can't in Indonesia. But so we realized we could. And we own, we're property owners in Japan. We own our house, piece of land. Uh, had my own business. Things were good. So we decided to stay here. I can, the, the, the final question I had was Social Security, my retirement. I worked a lot of hours and made pretty good money working at a, at the paper mill for more than a decade in America. I contributed a ton of money to Social Security, and it's my money. It's not a entitlement. It's it's my invested money that they held on to, and I expect to get that money back. So I went to back home. When I went to made an appointment with Social Security and checked on all of this, and I realized that. Uh, the American Social Security does have an uh, agreement with the Japanese uh, pension plan that I can collect Social Security uh, just as I could in America. And I can even sign up for Medicaid, I mean Medicare, I mean, uh, if I need a particular surgery or something I can't get in Japan, I can uh, go back to America and get it if they couldn't do it. So, um, 
So I went to the embassy in Tokyo, U.S. US embassy in Tokyo, and, and confirmed it. Yeah, the I can get my Social Security over here. I can do all the paperwork and all the application procedure over here, and they will put it direct deposit over here in Japan. And I said, wonderful. That's it. Staying in Japan. I can get my American Social Security when I'm of age, and I'm contributing now to the Japanese pension, so I can get a little bit of bump from that as well. And uh, have my own businesses and we own our house and uh, I'm not even 60 yet and, and uh, so everything's set up so affordable medicine so I, I made a determination uh, actually it was four years ago uh, at the 17 year mark I would say in Japan that I plan to stay here and retire here. All right, that's part two of the uh, kind of like kind of a quick summary over the course of the last 30 minutes of how I uh, kind of a recap of how I came, why, why I came to Japan in the first place. And this is uh, what happened kind of through the, through the years. A quick recap on this. The first, when I realized I wasn't able to go home, uh, I drank heavily and then I uh, bummed and scammed my way to get the booze and then I sobered up and picked myself up by the bootstraps, got my businesses in line, met a good woman, got married, and created a, a good life and I'm uh, happy that uh, I became a success story. I know several people that were in similar predicaments in Japan here. Uh, like me that it didn't pan out at all in a positive way. Anyway, thanks for listening to Mad in Japan podcast. Any suggestions, please email me at madinjapanpodcast at gmail.com. Mad in Japan podcast is one word. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome to Mad in Japan. This is season two, episode six, part four of my series, my first years in Japan. Sorry, it's been a while. This is, uh, so far, it's about a once a month pod- podcast. I will try to increase it in the future. Uh, kind of a busy season right now. The children start in school year, which is in April, and also I've had, um, uh, I do weddings on the weekend. The wedding, weddings are a little bit busy as well. Um, so, the part one, two, and three covers my first years in Japan up until around year 17. I've been in Japan for 21 years. And I, to do a little recap, uh, I came over here for a six-month stay, and I ended up living here permanently. My goal is to spend more visit time back in America as well as uh, my wife's home country of Indonesia, and that's what we were doing pretty much uh, for several years, doing a month or three weeks to a month in Indonesia in the wintertime and uh, trying to get to America for two or three weeks uh, in the early fall or late summer. Uh, because of the pandemic, it's been three years. But the good news is I have my tickets and I will be going back to America 
for the first visit in three years coming this September 2022. So I look forward to that. Tickets are bought, things, plans are made, and I hope to get back uh, and visit my friends and family. It's been the longest absence since I've been in Japan for 21 years. So three, three years is by far the longest. I think I went about a year and 10 months was the longest time before. So this is an additional year plus since last time I went to America. Anyway, um, as I said, I came over here for uh, six months to study martial arts and kind of got stuck over here and uh, ended up divorcing my Japanese wife and on good terms, I must say. Uh, I wasn't nasty anything like that. It was kind of a... It was kind of a green card situation anyway. Um, not solely, but, you know, partially. But uh, I became a permanent resident. Uh, interesting, when I applied for permanent residency, I had to fill out applications and things like that, and I had to write a little... Uh, I had to write a paper on why I want to live in Japan. And... Uh, and uh, and that has a lot to do with them granting you permanent residency. Uh, I, I know people who've been here for 20 years and still were unable to get permanent residency. Now, if you have a good job, uh, that speeds things up. If you're married to Japanese, that also speeds up things to get to, on your track to permanent residency. Um, <clears throat> I got it in five years, and I, my paper was on why Japan, and um, and what I covers, um, as a young man, my father lived in Japan, he was stationed here during the Korean War in the Air Force, and uh, I used to see pictures of his time in Japan, and I was very fascinated by that. Uh, from a young age, Japanese culture always fascinated me, and now that I've been living here for uh, several years uh, Japan suits my personality uh, Japanese are typically quiet people observant they love nature uh, they, they have very specialized interest and they are very orderly and polite and uh, optimistic is a, is a very important word and I experienced uh, kind of in certain some ways kind of the opposite reaction growing up in America I love America don't get me wrong but it was more competitive the competition is good but I'm talking about positive competition and Japan America is kind of a negative competition sometimes uh, trying to win by trying to look bigger by putting the other person down trying to elevate yourself by putting yourself down I'm even putting the other your opponent down, which Japan is, you elevate yourself by elevating yourself and not necessarily stepping on anybody else. And I kind of like that. Uh, kind of a peaceful, zen-like demeanor. Organization, being orderly. These are all my personality traits. Quiet, focused, uh, zen-like orderly. I have a touch of OCD. You know, I like things to be symmetrical and in everything should be in its place. And Japan offers that kind of uh, things uh, uh, for me to satisfy my OCD and also to 
uh, satisfy my personality. So I feel comfortable in Japan. And uh, so I kind of explained it in so many words that, you know, even though I was born in America and raised in America, I feel more at home in Japan uh, because it suits my personality. And the fact that I love beaches and I love mountains and we have them both together here. So that's also cool. Now, don't get me wrong. As I said before, there's some negatives over here. But generally speaking, I'm, I'm content and I'm happy. Uh, now, after I got my permanent residency, uh, me and my current wife um, got married and we had a family. And uh, I experimented with moving to, or I looked into rather, moving to Hawaii or even moving back home to my hometown in Virginia. After thinking very hard about it, list of pros and cons, as I said uh, before, I chose to, to stay in Japan and now... Uh, here I am in Japan. Uh, I like it here. Uh, do miss my f friends and family, and hope to visit on a regular basis after this pandemic situation. But I plan to stay here for the long haul. We uh, own our house. Uh, property taxes are reasonable. Uh, neighbors are great. This is pretty much everything is uh, good to. You know, to lead a good life, affordable health care, uh, safety, great transportation systems and public transport, and help if we need it, and lots of good friends and, and neighbors. Um, so, after the Lehman Brothers crash, I we had some rough times, as I mentioned, uh, lost about 80% or more of my business. And that's when I got into the wedding business. Now, I was already in the wedding business and uh, actually went to Hawaii to get licensed and do some further training because I was thinking about moving to Hawaii and that was a skill I was thinking about taking to Hawaii. And I also opened a, a small tiki bar to also to get that skill, being experienced in bar management and having my own bar and bartender, waitress, waitering. All that might, you know, look good on a resume. So I was building a, uh, a resume for the possibility of moving to uh, Honolulu. Ultimately, of course, I decided not to uh, because for the sake of the children and, uh, and just the cost of living and the reality of things. I didn't want to gamble uh, with the lives of my family and children. Um, so I decided to stay in Japan, which was already fine and great. So, so here I am. Now, one of the jobs I took, of course, I'm an English teacher, and and I'm a first. I think my top skill is kung fu. I'm a kung fu high level kung fu teacher. I've been doing the martial arts for forty some years. Uh, I don't study, you know, I'm not into the mixed martial arts thing, I'm jack of all trades. I'm very focused on certain skills sets and uh, I'm very, very good at those skill sets and, and I'm, I don't overcomplicate things by constantly expanding my session. I, yeah, I will revise and modify to, to fit real, realism and real world self-defense and real world situations, but I don't try to overdo it, I try to keep it simple and keep it basic and master the basics and and uh 
keep cultivating the same things and don't overcomplicate a system. A lot of people, they think by you know, study a little bit of that, a little bit of this, and a little bit of that, and make sure a well-rounded person. Not necessarily. Uh, I'm, I'm not... You might, you might, you can get things. If you're already high trained, you can pick things uh, from other styles, of course. I'm a follower of Jeet Kundo concepts. Basically, you master the fundamentals of Wing Chun, and then you can add what's use, useful to you and what's not useful. But you need to start from something. Starting from a beginner and trying to trying to formulate your own thing is a complicated and not necessarily a successful way of doing things. Now, I've been in real-life situations before, unfortunately. Uh, I thought I, was, I had mugged in Bali, Indonesia. I thought I was being killed uh, because uh, they were ripping the necklace off my my neck, and I had severe sunburn that day, and the, and the, the cutting of the necklace into my back felt like somebody was cutting me with a knife. So, you know... It didn't help that I recently had watched some beheading videos and things like that, and I was at the site of the biggest terrorist attack in Indonesian history, where the they blew up a bar and killed killed uh, well over a hundred people uh, just a couple a few years earlier, and I was actually right there in that location, and they had a high security alert because it was around the same time of year, Christmas. So all this was going through my mind, and I reacted, and I was very successful, and uh, I'll talk about that some other time. But I don't mean to get off on a tangent here, but I teach Kung Fu a particular way. I, I teach you how to escape techniques. I don't teach you to be punching and hitting in the beginning lesson. Now, some people are raised up in a very physical environment, but most people never really punch someone in their in their real life. So you shouldn't be doing your punching debut or kicking debut uh, with a hardened street criminal. Uh, that's just not a smart idea. So I, I, I focus on escape techniques, avoidance and escape first. And then I use teach techniques that you use uh, natural body mechanics uh, such as turning uh, twisting and turning and things like that stepping behind their legs at a safe zone I call it or the blind side and uh, using your whole body against theirs for example uh, smart escapes and then then I teach uh, punch intercepts that are smart and I teach uh, a technique which uh, if you're just getting pounded and pounded and you just can't uh, intercept the punch and you can't block it so you put your hands up in a, like a triangle manner you focus on the feet of your opponent and then your the front foot you sweep behind and you just you never look up you, you basically duck and cover yourself and focus on the opponent's feet and I'll show you several ways to to take people down in that situation. And, and then it graduates to uh, more more punching and attacking. But that don't come for months down the road. I just teach you to escape and run. Matter of fact, the very first program I teach is called BEAR, which is B-E-A-R, Basic Escape and Run Tactics. So BEAR, Basic Escape and Run. Well, anyway, I teach, I started teaching English 
the same way. Teach you the basics first, the very minimal things you need to survive. I'm not for memorizing forms and katas like uh, some styles do. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not for that at all. But so the same way with English. I don't make people memorize a dialogue or look memorize questions in a phrase book and then they don't understand the answers. What's that about? Um, so I teach people to develop their own communication. So I teach them a few key words, nouns, a few key uh, pronouns, a few key uh, verbs and adjectives, and then they formulate their sentence very basically. But they are talking. They're thinking what they want to say, and they're expressing yourself, even though it may be broken. Same way as I teach martial arts. I teach the basics first. And then I expand on that, fill in the gaps. And this has been proven to work. So I teach English like I teach my martial arts. The essentials first, uh, kind of like learn today, use today. Uh, even if you stop training with me after a couple months, you have some useful skills. It's not something you have to train for six months before you can even do anything basic. You have useful, useful skills just after a few weeks, actually. Same way with English. So I started teaching English that way. And it works. Uh, my students are high-level English speakers, fast. Uh, and like I said before, when you, exp you master the basics and then you can use different things, but they don't work for you, don't use them. Uh, for example, some songs... Letting bridges falling down, ring around the rose, things like that. Some schools kind of use, it's, that's fine. But I don't use that. If it's not, I use music and songs, but I, only if they're teaching something or, or something that's useful. So use what's useful, disregard what's useless. So, jikung do concepts, I also use in my English teaching as well. Now, another thing I do is I do weddings on the weekend. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I was kind of quiet. I'm not necessarily a public speaker. Now, I'll, I have no problem being a public speaker when it comes to Kung Fu and with my English students and things like that. As far as a, you know, 100, 200 people at a wedding, a very formal ceremony, that's the last thing in the world I ever wanted to do. But I knew that was a lucrative job. But it, I just did not want to do it. It's like the last resort for me. So, after the Lehman Brothers crash and things started happening, I, I started looking into that, to do, to do that. I'm going, I can't believe I'm even considering public speaking. It's like the last thing I want to do. Uh, a little tidbit, I, I, was, uh, I studied industrial technologies and industrial management at a community college back in America. And I went to night school so I could pick and choose the, the courses I could fit into my schedule. And you have a certain list of sports, I mean, uh, courses and subjects you must take. And I never got my associate's degree because it's one class I never finished. And that was public speaking. I was horrified to do it. And uh, I regret it now, but... Uh, here I am. So I do public speaking. Not only do I do public speaking, I do public speaking in Japanese in front of a major production wedding. Weddings are really big production over here. There's a lot of money involved. You have professional photographers and cameramen, and it's a big ordeal over here in Japan.
So they gave me the script of the wedding that I needed to do. And I've done a few low-key. I've been married. I've been involved in weddings. And I've done a couple low-key weddings. And I've never done anything like this. Uh, so they gave me a script. And I I retyped this. It's in Japanese. And I retyped it in in not English, they call it Romanji with the alphabet, you know, uh, like Sayonara, S-A, you spell it out. But I created an accent system because some, they're, some words, they're not equivalent sounds. So I wrote, typed the script in a certain way and made these certain accents and did the best way to design the script of kind of my own personal phonetic script. Uh, so to get the pronunciation in the ballpark anyway. And I practiced reading and reading and reading. And then I hired a professional who had a very good voice and I recorded a CD of him doing the exact script and I would read along with it and refine it and practice, practice, practice. So I practiced every single day for at least an hour reading the same script. The script's only like 15 minutes total reading the same script over and over again three four five six times a day I used to take my daughter to the park she played in the park and i'll sit over in the bench and just study the script and then i got a got a coach and used to meet him every tuesday japanese and i used to read the script over and over again and he'll help me out the pronunciation over and over again every tuesday for an hour uh the old japanese man is a nice old man rest in peace mr osami san um and uh, and then I would, the, the wedding company I worked for would call me on the telephone and I would actually recite the script on the telephone. So this went on for a couple, three months. I knew I'd be horrified by public speaking, but I knew the only way I could do it is, is if I knew I was good. It's like, you know, you're not a guitar player, but you have to play the guitar. And, but... Just one song only, okay? So you don't have to play many songs. Just play the same song over and over again. So basically, that's what I, you know, that's that analogy is what I'm using. I'm focused on one song and just practicing over and over again, and that's it. And so that's my script, basically. And uh, so I knew I wouldn't be, I'd be a little bit less nervous if I knew that I didn't totally suck okay that I was coherent at least and uh, so that's that's how I do it and when I get up there I'm nervous a little bit before but once I get going I'm fine uh, kind of an outer, outer body experience I guess some people who've done public speaking can re relate but I'm still a bit nervous but I don't show it uh, my heart's racing fast and if it's a particular big wedding and I'm not particular focused or not in the right perfect headset, I might shake a little bit. But my boss says that that's fine. That's good. You know, uh, that means you care. And, uh, and I remember my martial arts, my Kung Fu training anyway. Um, Kung Fu training was, you know, accept fear. Fear is your ally. It helps prepare for fight or flight. It helps prepare your body. It makes you hyper-focused. Uh, and if you 
deny fear, you're going against a human emotion, and then you already lost a battle because you get a negative thought, like, oh, you know, I remember going to a karate dojo, and I was like, fear number, rule number one, be fearless. Oh, man, I'm so against that. I got my butt kicked because of that be fearless karate situation because I was, my very first encounter uh, in a fight, the first thing that happened was I thought I was a badass, won a few trophies and things like that. My first real street encounter, my legs got wobbly and I got fear and I like my kicks were like useless, like a three-legged cat trying to bury a turtle on an ice pond. It was just not <clears throat> not good at all. And I, it sent me to thinking, you know, what is this? You know, blood leaves your your legs and and I realized, you know, something was wrong here. You know, it's like fear is a human emotion. Uh, like you're dying of a terminal disease. Of course you're gonna have fear. You're in a you're in a nosedive in a flaming airplane. Of course you can have fear. You know why would you deny something that that's there for a reason? It's like uh, any other emotion you may have. It's usually there for a reason. Now the one emotion or thing that you should avoid and try to keep away from because it's negative to you is anger. Uh, anger is one letter away from danger, so you should avoid anger. But fear, you can embrace it. And I embrace fear, and I don't see it as a bad thing, so I get through the wedding without being shaking and obviously fear. And, and I and after the wedding's done, and it's a good wedding, is the, the after-the-show kind of deal high is wonderful. You know, you feel good coming down. That that you know, that rush you get after the show is great. Uh, so I I'm approaching nine hundred weddings now, and uh, I like it. It's it's good money, not as good as it used to be back a few years ago, but it's decent money, and I really enjoy being there on people's happiest day of their life. Usually, uh, it's it helps me, makes me feel better, makes me more optimistic. I enjoy that. So, that's what I've been doing uh, the last few years. Teaching Kung Fu and teaching English like Kung Fu, like Jeet Kune Do concepts, you know. Master the basics. And use what is useful. Uh, disregard what is not. And uh, weddings. Master. Yeah. Uh, master the, the technique, master the script, and uh, do well at that. Uh, well, this I hope to get back soon. This is a little update. I'm approaching 25 minutes here, and uh, I've, I'll try to do it more often. Any ideas, any questions about Japan, let me know. This will be the end of uh, my first years in Japan, basically covering years one all the way up to now which is year 21 uh, part four is ended so next week I will do some Q&A's again that I had a few accumulate in my email and if you have any questions to add to the Q&A next time I get on here uh, maybe next week might be a, two or three weeks I'm a little bit busy coming up but just send me an email at uh, madinjapanpodcast at gmail.com Matt in Japan podcast is one word. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to reading your emails.
Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.